Isaiah chapter 11 as we continue uh, through Isaiah and through the Old Testament. Chapter 11 is about the reign of Jesse's offspring. The reign of Jesse's offspring, Jesse being David's father. Chapter 11 is a continuation of the prophecy started in chapter 7. And it will end with chapter 12. In the previous chapters, we've seen a time of judgment. A time that the Lord Jesus called the Great Tribulation Period. And here in chapter 11, is, it's one of the great messianic prophecy, prophecies of Scripture. And it speaks about the coming of Christ to set up his kingdom and the type of agenda or program that he's going to set up. And in chapter 12, we will have the end, the climax of this section of this prophecies of uh, chapter 7 through 12, uh, where we'll see the worship of the Lord in the kingdom. When we finish chapter 10, remember there was a forest that was cut down. And that forest represented the pride and the evil of men in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. It says nothing but stumps were left. There were no signs of life anywhere. But then something new happens. Something new presents itself. So let's begin with chapter 11, verse 1. And it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So remember, chapter 10, we left off, there was nothing but dead trees. Not even a a sign of life anywhere. But in chapter 11 now, it talks about this, 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 rod that's going to come forth from the stem of Jesse and a branch is going to grow out of his roots. And so in the Hebrew, it says the stump of the line of Jesse. You know, it says it here says uh, from the stem of Jesse. But in the Hebrew, it says the stump of the line of Jesse. And again, Jesse was King David's father. Compared to the proud trees that were cut down in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, this tender shoot from what seems like a dead stump, is going to spring forth. Here Isaiah looks beyond his people's trials to the glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ that will be established when the Messiah comes to reign. And that's what verses 11, uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 speaks about here. David's dynasty was ready to come to an end, but out of David's family, that is his lineage, would come the Messiah. And it says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, Paul said in Romans 1, 3. John said in Revelation 5, 5. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. So a godly remnant of Jews kept the nation alive so that the Messiah could be born. Here it says the stem, from one stem or stump, a little rod, which is a shoot or a twig, will grow. And it becomes a branch, and that branch bears fruit. We see achieving life out of death. And our Lord Jesus came from the family of David. But more importantly, he came from a ruined and sinful human race. 
And Jesus became a tree of life and the founder of a new human race for earth dying millions. Isaiah here is thinking of a little boy born without a big fanfare, born inconspicuously over 2,000 years ago with no importance, but roots in a failed ancient family. All, it was all there was. He's the only one who can save us from ourselves. But, not only, but, but, but the Messiah has more than just a royal lineage, a royal ancestry. Look at verse 2 now. Now, this verse 2 speaks about this, this root, this stem of Jesse that's going to grow out of the roots. Upon, it says, notice verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus, which verse 1 is speaking about, Jesus has the anointing of the Holy Spirit here in verse 2. King Ahaz was the son of David, but King Ahaz, man, he was spiritually poor. He was spiritually bankrupt. In Matthew 3.16, after Jesus was baptized, we read this, that Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then in Matthew 14, verse 1, the very next chapter, the very next verse after Matthew 3, 16, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Think of that. He went from this beautiful experience in Matthew 3.16 of being baptized and the Holy Spirit descending upon him and the heavens are open and the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The very next sentence says, He was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Because Jesus is now getting ready to start his ministry in Galilee. And notice, this is an important note, and I, and I wanted to share with this with you. <clears throat> you see, a lot of times when people are going through trials and temptations and the devil is tempting them, they think that they've done something wrong. Or there's something wrong with their walk. Or there's some sin in their life. But notice from Matthew 3.16, when he was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended upon him and his father speaks of his approval, the very next sentence says, He's now in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, but some important is look who led him there, the Holy Spirit. This wasn't the work of the devil. The Holy Spirit led Jesus there, and then Satan tempted him because he's getting ready to start his ministry in Galilee. And Satan, right off the bat, is wanting to stop the ministry of Jesus. The note is this, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit and you can obey God's will and you will still have temptations and trials. That's the nature of the Christian walk. Now, Jesus doesn't use or need our strategy or our methods for power to accomplish his will. He has another way of building the perfect world. And verse 2 here gives us the sevenfold spirit that rested on Jesus. Now, this sevenfold spirit represents, it represents the completeness of power. It says he has, it's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, 
the spirit of understanding and of counsel and of might and of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, the sevenfold spirit of completeness. The Holy Spirit is one person, though it says here the sevenfold spirit. The Holy Spirit is one person. The number seven speaks of the fullness and the completeness for, uh, of his ministry. Now, the number seven in Scripture doesn't necessarily mean perfection. The main idea is fullness or completeness. Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, Paul tells us to be filled with the Spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 47, the water that Ezekiel speaks about is a type of the Holy Spirit. And Ezekiel 47, it reads this in verse 3. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Now, the water came up to my ankles speaks of the walk of the believer in the Spirit. And then in Ezekiel 47, verse 4, it says, And again he measured 1,000 cubits and brought me through the waters and the water was up to my knees and he again measured 1,000 and brought me through and the water came up to my waist and then in verse 5 it says and again he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep water in which one must swim a river that could not be crossed waters to swim in indicates the fullness of the spirit some Christian spirit life is like to be, in verse 3, where it's ankle deep. Some Christian spirit life is knee deep. And some Christians walk with Christ is waist deep, and some are swimming in the spirit. Now, you don't meet very many Christians who are really filled with the Holy Spirit, swimming in the spirit like Ezekiel said. That the Holy Spirit is just running out all over them. They're just overflowing with the Spirit of God. That is, they're victorious, they're powerful, they're joyful, they're effective, they're loving, they're fruitful, they're faithful, they're committed. That is to be, again, the, 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 the life of the Christian, like Christ's life. The Lord was the exception. Isaiah says that the Spirit of the Lord, here notice, shall rest upon him in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Jesus, in his humility, went out, performed his ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes again, he's going to rule in the power of the Holy Spirit. Then verse 2 said the Spirit of wisdom rested upon him. The Spirit of wisdom. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.30, He, that is Jesus, became for us wisdom from God. Paul said in Colossians 2.3, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom here is the ability to discern the nature of things through the appearance. Okay, Jesus is the only one who can lead and guide you and me through this life. And we are no match for this world today, for the world today. This world will eat us up. We need the spirit of wisdom. We need Jesus, who is that spirit of wisdom. 
James said in chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask and it will be given to you liberally. You can have as much wisdom as you want. God says, I'll give it to you. Third, it says that it's the spirit of understanding. Understanding is the ability of discerning the difference of things in their appearance, which means spiritual discernment. We need to be able to, to, to discern things that we see. You know, what is it really that we're seeing, the appearance of it? We need the Holy Spirit to discern. All right, we need spiritual discernment. And again, it's really sad to see how many Christians don't have any or little discernment at all. You know, I'm kind of surprised the way that some people will follow some man or some woman purely on, on, on human basis. That is because they like the way he or her looks. They like their personality. Oh, they like them because they're so funny and they tell great stories or they're so nice. And yet they never really know what that person is saying. Or if what that person is saying is really true or if it lines up with the word of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing, notice, spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, that is the man that's not born again, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. That's why you can, you can share the, the, the gospel and you can share spiritual things and they just look at you with a glazed look in their eyes because it's going just like this. Because the man without the Holy Spirit can't understand the things of the Spirit that you have, which you're trying to explain to them. That's why prayer is so important to break through to that person who's not born again. That God will allow them to to be able to, to see and to understand long enough to know the truth and to make that decision. Paul goes on to say, but the natural man knows does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. That's why they joke about us and call us weirdos and whatever. Because what we're telling him is just, oh man, they're talking weird stuff. And I remember the day that Raul witnessed to me. I went home and told my mom, he's finally gone off the deep end, mom. Man, he was talking stuff to me I had never even heard of. The blood of Christ and being saved and, and, you know, and just born again. I'm going, oh my goodness, what has happened to my friend? And, then, and so it was foolishness to me. And it says, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know those spiritual things because they, they, they are spiritually discerned. You can only know them through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says, what he means when they are spiritually discerned. Christians need the spirit of understanding. We need it today more than ever. We need to know who's for the Lord and who isn't. We need to know who's preaching the truth and who isn't. And then the fourth uh, uh, of the sevenfold spirit of Christ is the spirit of counsel, it says in verse 2. Counsel is the gift of forming right conclusions. And all of us need counsel at some time or another. Jesus never asked anybody for advice. He never held a committee meeting. He never asked for counsel. He gave counsel. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 13. Isaiah said, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? He always knew what to do and he always does and he always will. 
The fifth thing, the fifth uh, uh, sevenfold spirit of Christ is the spirit of might. The spirit of might. This, is the, this, this power is the ability to carry out the things that God uh, calls us to do with, with energy, with power. And oh, oh, how we need power today. Paul says in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We need Christ's power for victory today over many difficulties and temptations that we face in this life and in this walk. And then six is the spirit of knowledge. That is the knowledge of Jehovah God. The knowledge of Jehovah is knowledge that's founded on the fellowship of love and the fear of Jehovah. Fear that is, just, that is wrapped around in, in, in reverence for him. There can be no knowledge unless you know God. Because he's all knowledge. Because knowledge comes from God because God is omniscient. He knows everything. And to know God is the first rule, the first need of, of all true religion. Did the Messiah, did Jesus know God? We need to remember what the branch of Jesse here mentioned in verse 1, which is Jesse said when he was here on earth. Jesus said in Matthew 27, 11, Jesus saying, no one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The seventh spirit of, uh, 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 of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the heart of, of, of biblical religion, Christianity. The fear of the Lord includes knowing that God is, is, is supremely holy. And it's a fear. When it says fear, it's not like a cowardly fear where you're afraid God's going to whack you with a stick or something. No, it, it isn't that kind of a fear. It, it, it's a reverential fear. It's, reverent, it's based on recognizing his holiness together with full reverence before him. We, we reverence him because of who he is. True religion is a reverent and godly fear because it recognizes that the creature, that is us, is nothing but dust before the creator. And, and he lays face down in God's presence, expressing itself in reverential wonder. It's like Revelation 19.4, and when John said, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne. It's just a reverential fear of God. Because he's holy and he's supreme, and, and I am but dust. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, produces the fear of the Lord in those who He gives this gift. Even the Messiah will be filled with the fear of the Lord in order to do His mighty works. Now look at verse 3. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and He shall not judge by the sight of His eyes, nor decide by the hearing of His ears. This is good counsel for all of us to remember and for all of us to practice. The, the Messiah's judgment will not be based on the, on the ordinary ways that most of us get our information is by what we see and what we hear based on our senses. Our eyes and our ears can trick us. 
They can only give us an outward idea of what we're really seeing and hearing. You know, you've heard the expression, believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. That's kind of what's being said here. And as Jesus is not going to based on, on, on what he sees and, and on, on hearsay. And for perf- perfect justice, for perfect justice, there has to be absolute knowledge. In other words, we have to know we have to get and we have to have all the facts before making any, any verbal uh, you know, decision or, 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 or say anything about what we see and what we hear. I have to get and I have to have all the facts. That is, I have to have knowledge that you can't get just through the ordinary senses of the eyes and the ears. Verse 4. But with righteousness, notice, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Those who needed the Messiah's righteous judgment the most are the poor and the oppressed because they're easy targets. It's always been that way. And it seems like people are always trying to or are taking advantage of the poor and the weak. And when they went to men to try to get justice, they didn't get it. That is God's people. When they went to men to try to get justice, they didn't get it. But the Messiah is going to judge all men equally and fairly. And as far as the earth is concerned, it says here, notice in verse 4, that God is going to strike it. He's going to strike it. And, and, and with the word of his mouth, Isaiah said, he's going to judge the earth and all men by his word. His word is a saving word as well as condemning word. That very word that he speaks that will save you, if you reject it, it will also condemn you. Verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. In other words, he's going to wear righteousness like a belt and he's going to wear truth like an undergarment. The thing that's going to guarantee the Lord's reign is going to be his righteousness and his faithfulness. And the purpose of Christ's reign on this earth is to bring in a reign of righteousness and justice and to restore the authority that Adam lost by the fall. Verses 6 through 10, now we see the coming peace. Verses 6 through 10. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day <clears throat> there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. The Messiah anointed by the Holy Spirit is the only one who can renew nature. He made this world. He created this world and everything that's in it. He loves it, and he's going to make it new again. Revelation 21.5, it says, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And John was speaking of Jesus who was sitting on the throne. Jesus said, Behold, I will make all things new. 
Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, John said, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, this one, and the first earth are passed away, had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In other words, the behavior of these animals mentioned in verses 6 through 10 wasn't normal. The behavior of these animals isn't normal. But Messiah's peace will be for all eternity. It will be forever. These animals that are now, you know, enemies of each other or hostile to one another, one day they're going to lay down together, they're going to rest together, and they're not going to be hostile towards, they're not going to be trying to eat each other. Man and beast are going to live in harmony together one day. When the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord, the human race will finally be one. The earth will finally be at peace and will never hurt each other again. For so many centuries, this is what leaders have wanted to do. This is what they have promised to do. How many times, election after election, have we heard those promises? They're going to make this world a better place. You know, it's good. You know, it's they're wanting to, to again just promise and and make it a heaven on earth and yet look at us today we're still warring with each other killing each other nation against nation kingdom against king that's all we hear today russia and china and iran and the united states they did this and they did that. They're responsible for this. And, and warnings about, you know, war and, 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 you know, taking a tough stand. You know, it's really sad that we have to wait for that world, the one that's mentioned here in Isaiah chapter. It's sad that we have to wait for that world to come when we could have it right now. If we'd only bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we'd only bow to his rule, he would lead us into everything that's safe and everything that's pleasant. There wouldn't be any more darkness. There wouldn't be any more hurt, nor deception, no pain, no sorrow, no crime, no poverty, no oppression, no hunger, no injustice. His kingdom is the last and the final answer to these things and every other sorrow that man has created. The key to verse 10, notice it says, is the phrase, in that day. In that day. That day starts with the tribulation period on into the kingdom. And then in verses 11 through 16, it speaks of the future of Israel. Let's begin with, verses 11, with verse 11. It shall come to pass, notice, in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. God is going to restore the nation of Israel to the land. They were established the first time in the land when Moses led them out of Egypt and Joshua brought them into the promised land. Verse 12. He goes on to say, He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What is the banner? Again, the banner, it's a flag. 
But that banner, what that banner is, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It won't be the same material banner or some flag that will be lifted up on a flagpole, but He, Jesus Christ, will be the rallying cry. He'll be the rallying, rallying center for the humble of the earth in that day. And Isaiah is speaking of that day when Jesus brings His people back that were scattered all over the world. That will be the day when the meek will inherit the earth. That's God's plan. That's God's program, and God is going to bring it to pass. Verse 13, Isaiah goes on to say, Also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off, and Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Now, verse 13 says, Then, then at last, finally, the jealousy between Israel and Judah will end. They won't be rivals anymore. Israel being the northern kingdom and Judah being the southern kingdom. How terrible and sad when there's conflict between God's people. Ephraim is another name for, for Israel and the northern kingdom. Ephraim, it says here, they had envied Judah. And they had tried to achieve the position, Ephraim had, or northern kingdom Israel... They tried to, to achieve the position of being superior among all the tribes. And at first there were others who were their enemy, but it eventually narrowed down to just Judah, the other part of Israel. Brothers against brothers. When Jacob blessed Judah, he gave them, that is Judah, the preeminence. And the tribe of Judah was more in number than Ephraim, or the northern kingdom, and also first in war. There were bad feelings that were caused because of their quarrels with each other. Those quarrels between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, that is Israel, resulted in wars between the northern and southern tribes of Israel. How many times has envy been the reason for trouble in the church? We Christians have to guard our hearts so that no envy or nor jealousy ever is allowed to creep in. When Ephraim's envy is turned aside, as it says here in the end of verse 13, when Ephraim's envy is turned aside, Judah's enemies who trouble and afflict her will also be cut off. Where were these oppressors to be found? No doubt these oppressors were with, were with Ephraim. But Isaiah could have been talking about all of those who afflict Judah. So when the Messiah reigns, Ephraim is no longer going to live with envy towards the southern kingdom. And Judah is no longer going to act in such a way as to aggravate her northern neighbor to anger and frustration. They're no, again, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom are no longer going to be at odds with each other. The big disgrace in Israel history was the division between Israel under the king Jeroboam. He caused them to be divided, and they caused the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Included in this division was also an apostasy. That is, a total rejection by the northern tribes of the promises that were made to the house of David. All of these terrible conditions were so wrong. And throughout her history... God sent prophets to the apostate nation, that is Israel, to call them to repentance. 
and to point it to the Messiah, who is the only one who could heal their division. This is a good lesson for us today. True unity will be produced only through the Messiah. What man and even church leaders can't do, the Messiah can do. Unity has to be in the truth. In Christ, the whole world, down to the smallest neighborhood, those differences will be done away with and through the Messiah. We learn that Christ, in Christ, there is a true unity and a true peace for all men, no matter what race or color. It's only in Christ where we can truly be one people. Verse 14. But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines towards the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east, and they shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. Notice now that Judah and, 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 um, the, Judah and uh, Israel now, they're working together. That is, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they're working together here. And notice it says there in verse 14, they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west together. Together, notice, they shall plunder basically their enemy. You know, we have an enemy out there, but many times we inside the church are, are fighting with each other. And the enemy's out there laughing. But when we come together in Christ, then we can come down on the enemy as Isaiah is describing here. The nations of Edom and Moab and Ammon, they bordered Judah along with Philistia. They were the nations who, when Judah was defeated, they rejoiced and took Judah's land. But notice what great things are, can be done here that is shown here and happen when there's true unity. Israel and Judah are together here in verse 14. They take the offensive against their enemy. They're fighting their enemy together. And it says, as we know, the enemy has to be destroyed. And it's the enemy we should be fighting and not each other. And in Israel and Judah's strength, in their unity, they attack the Philistines here in verse 14, who represent the enemies of God and his church. Verse 15. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind, he will shake his fist over the river, that is the Euphrates, and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dry shod. Now, even though there's this unity spoken of here in verse 15 of Israel and Judah, it's wonderful, all right? The secret of their victory is that the Lord, notice, fights for them. It says, the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt with his mighty, notice, his fist over the river, that is the river Euphrates. So the secret of their victory is that, 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 Jesus, that, that Jesus fought, God fought for them. Now, this, this, this tongue of Egypt, this tongue of the Sea of Egypt was standing in their way. It was an old standing problem. It was an old problem standing in their way, this, this tongue of the Sea of Egypt. This tongue of the Sea of Egypt, this was a body of water that went north from the Red Sea, and this obstacle had to be destroyed. The Lord was going to take care of it. He was utterly going to destroy it because it couldn't, know, it couldn't be a hindrance to the redemption of God's people anymore. To the east was the river Euphrates, Euphrates River, that had, to cut, off, that, that had cut off the Israelites from their homeland. 
But God says he's going to lift up his hand and he's going to stir up a strong wind and, he's going to, and the river is going to part into seven streams here. So the power of the Euphrates will be broken so that men will be able to walk across it. It says dry shot. They're going to be walk, walk across it like it was dry. The Egyptian Sea and the Euphrates rivers were far apart. But they were two obstacles that God's people at that time had to face. But you see, when God moves, all hindrances will be removed. Just like they had been removed for God's people at other times. And God, it says, brings them safely through all hindrances and difficulties into the promised land. I love Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. He says, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. God says, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Notice three times the word through. Mark that word. That's, that's an important word. He said, he said, when you pass through the waters. He didn't say when you go under them or when you avoid them. He says when you go through them. I'm going to be with you in the midst of those waters. And he says, and through the rivers. And he says, through the, through the fire. Just like Jesus was, was with Daniel's three friends in the fire. You see, he's going, to go, he's, going to, he's going to take us through. He's going to be with us in all of our difficulties and all of our trials. Verse 16. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in that day that he came up from the land of Egypt. When Assyria has finished her work, that is when God's through using her as, a, as, a, as an instrument to judge his people, there's going to be a remnant of God's people that's left. It says here there's going to be a highway for them where they can return to the land of promise. It's a way that the Lord himself will build. He's going to build that highway for them. Look, so in closing, when Isaiah looked at his people, when Isaiah looked at his people, he saw a sinful nation that would one day walk the highway of holiness and enter into a righteous kingdom. He saw a suffering people who would one day enjoy a beautiful and peaceful kingdom. He saw a scattered people who one day would be regathered and reunited under the kingship and the leadership of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6.10, Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. But before His kingdom can come, our kingdom must go. Because there can't be two kingdoms. You cannot live in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of, of the world. You can't have a divided heart. You can't serve two masters. Only when his kingdom comes can there be real peace, total peace on earth. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful prophecy, God, this beautiful chapter about Jesus Christ about that day, that day when Messiah sets up his kingdom.
and he rules with the word of his mouth. And one day, this old earth will be passed away and the old heavens will be passed away. And as John said, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. A new earth that comes down. Everything is new. No more pain, no more sorrow. No more trials or temptations, no more tears. And so, Father, we we long for that day. And as Hebrews says, may we be looking unto Jesus. Looking unto Jesus. Looking up. For we know that our redemption draws nigh. So, Father, help us to stay focused. Help us to stay centered. And and to look to you, Father, for all things. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, just to let you know, Sunday.